Hello and welcome to Combat Classics. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Today, we're very fortunate to have Andrea Radasanu, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Northern Illinois University, to talk about Thucydides and his history of the Peloponnesian War. And specifically, uh, we're going to be talking about Pericles' funeral oration and the first and second plague in Athens. So, Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so we wanted to start off with um, you kind of uh, talking about a little bit of the text uh, and or opening a question. So the floor is yours. Perfect. Thanks. Um, I will begin by saying, um, apparently, I will set <laughs> <laughs> always a great start. So yes, I was, I'm a, I like to follow rules. So I was told to give a few introductory remarks, which I will very quickly. Um, and then, yeah, we can, I'm really excited to get to talk about it. So the plague um, takes place during the second year of the war. The war is very long. It's just a little under 30 years long. Um, so not a lot of terrible things have happened so far that may be worth noting, uh, which is always a very interesting thing to consider when you look at the fact that the plague where it is just a disastrous situation for Athens takes place between the two longest speeches that Thucydides gives us of Pericles, the famous Pericles who had been in power for 30 years at that point, who's the architect of the Athenian empire and who is in charge of the war effort against the Spartans at that point. So, he has to give this funeral oration, which then turns out to be one of the most uh, famous documents of its kind for till the present moment. And it's all about, obviously, uh, talking about uh, how wonderful the dead were to provide the service, the service of their death to Athens. Of course, there weren't that many dead people at the time. That all changes when, we, when, when the plague ravages Athens at least from our narrative standpoint, directly after the funeral oration. And then immediately after the funeral oration, we uh, also have, we have his final speech, uh, after which point we learn that Pericles himself succumbs to, to the plague. So it, it's, you know, Thucydides is extremely well known for his international relations, for his thoughts regarding war, why they begin, uh, what the motivations of people are or states or cities are when, when undertaking war, uh, the character of Athens and Sparta as they come at each other during this sort of absolutely devastating war for everybody that essentially sees the end of the polis come to be. Uh, but then there is the plague, and I should maybe mention that there's sort of a sister uh, situation in, in the in the course of this narrative, which is uh, stasis or terrible civil war. So plague and stasis are the two, you could say domestic situations that he looks at through a microscope and gives us some insight into. So um, he looks at, one might also say that this is, you know, he, he's, always, he's always interested in what causes states to behave well, uh, what, what causes them to be functional, so to speak, what kinds of, 
what kinds of issues arise in terms of getting citizens to behave as citizens, uh, to be good towards one another, or, or when the, the fabric of society, so to speak, sort of falters. And the plague is certainly one such instance of that. So I thought maybe we can start just to toss something out there uh, by, by thinking through a little bit, asking the question as to why the plague is nestled between the two major speeches of Pericles. Um, why is that? Why would he have done that? What's the relationship between the plague and Pericles? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. It is striking how the plague falls between the two major speeches of, of Pericles. And, you know, from a kind of, um, what would you call it, naive perspective on cause and effect, you might start from the position that uh, anything that comes after another thing is the effect of that thing. And so we could just toy with this, this idea and see if it makes any sense. Did Pericles, in some sense, cause the Athenian plague? Because the plague happened in Athens after Pericles uh, delivered the funeral oration. Does that make uh, sense on any level for us? Maybe perhaps, especially if, if the plague, the plague is a terrible moment for Athens. Um, so can we conceive of it as a, as a punishment of some sort? Is that something you may, you have in mind when asking that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's one form of cause and effect, right? So, you know, uh, you misbehave, you get punished by some authority, right? And maybe right. you would look then to a divinity. You'd say, well, the simple-minded interpretation or the initial interpretation is to say that gods visited the plague on Athens because... Pericles um, said something impious in the funeral oration at uh, a moment when um, the gods might have been paying attention for some reason. Um, right. but, I, but I was wondering whether there might be a, a, another way of going at it too, that um, could the plague be um, not only a real occurrence, but also um, a metaphorical occurrence or a real occurrence that could have a metaphorical interpretation and Thucydides might be thinking something like, well, um, I can depict this thing that actually happened in a certain way so as to illustrate a natural effect, not a, not a punishment, but a natural effect of something that Pericles drew on in his funeral oration and then maybe even had to tamp down in right. his second major speech. So I, I guess, right. you know, so now I've got what you could call two... Um, initial hypotheses, right? right? Divine punishment and natural consequence. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a great, um, a great frame with which, through which to think this through. So um, what, what could Pericles have done one way or the other, either to anger the gods or uh, put Athens in a particular pickle uh, in, in dealing with, with, with the plague? So, I mean, one thing he, he did that Thucydides does bring up and, and the very core of his analysis of the plague after this oration is that the Athenians found themselves all bunched up together within the walls of Athens. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not the funeral oration in particular that, that speaks to this, but right in advance of that, we know that, uh, that he had 
all of the uh, Athenians come out of Attica and within the walls. So, you know, that was, that was his, the, the core of his war strategy. Let the Spartans come every spring, ravage the land, don't come out and engage them. They will leave. It'll be fine. Um, well, um, that's, you know, for him, this was, these were just uh, fields that could regrow at a certain point. But Thucydides goes to the trouble to tell us that for the Athenians, this was a heartbreaking thing that they had to do because these are their ancestral lands. This, these are their roots. This is, this is, in fact, something to do with the gods for them. This is the, their piety sort of lived in these, in these lands. So, yeah, so he pulled everybody in. And, you know, the gods could, by the way, be mad about that. Um, and on, on the public health side of it, the, the density of the population is, is great and they are more susceptible to really suffering as a result of the plague. Right. So it's a consequence of Thucydides strategy that they, the Athenians, especially the, um, the refugees from the countryside cannot practice social distancing. No, as we no say, social right? distancing available. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the relevant contrast then is, is apparently in Sparta or in the Peloponnesus more generally, the plague had very little effect. And Thucydides reports uh, the opinion that the um, Spartans left off their invasion of Attica out of fear of the plague. But then he notices, well, actually, they were there longer on that particular invasion than right. any other invasion. So he's clearly skeptical of that explanation. Um, so it could be, maybe we can even take this a step further and say it's not just the, um, the accident of a high population density forced by the refugees from the countryside, but even something about the population density that's characteristic of the Athenian way of life, because the Peloponnesians apparently, they're not really prone to the plague. Well, I mean, Sparta is isolated. Right. And, but right. It, it does seem, it does, it does seem to make them, as you, I think your description's really good about how the Spartans stay longer. I think that's the relevant piece. They were, they were uh, buoyed by the, by what was happening to the Athenians and they didn't feel particularly uh, afraid of the plague. Now, and, and, you know, obviously throughout the course of the narrative for Thucydides, the Spartans are constantly leaving early for some reason or another, you know, this is, it's almost comical. So it's, it's not, it is worth noticing what you noticed. I think, you know, they don't come running. I mean, if, if, if there are many times where if there is a, a sign from the gods that this is not propitious, if there's an earthquake, they will run back, they'll scurry straight back to Sparta. <laughs> but uh, this time they're like, hmm, this is happening to the Athenians. This is a good sign for us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, doesn't, I mean, Thucydides brings up uh, a couple of, of old oracles, you know, that were, that, that were dusted off for the purposes of in, interpreting at this point. Um, including they were they were thinking you know that the, the the Spartans look it looked to them that maybe the gods were on the side of Sparta maybe the way to interpret all of this is in fact that the gods might be displeased with something about Athens and serve Sparta in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, can we press on this then a little bit? What are the things that strike us in the funeral oration that might be? Um, pious and or impious and therefore regarded as meta metaphorical causes of the plague or possible reasons for divine punishment. Are there things 
in there that leap out at at any of us? I don't know about the, the I'm 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 definitely intrigued by the idea of the the impiety. Um, I think that there's something that is not necessarily rational and that 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 might be a, a hamartia to use one of my four Greek terms that I know. Um, <laughs> which <Good> is one. <laughs> yeah, it comes in handy. Uh, so in paragraph 37 uh, in Pericles funeral oration. He says, let me say uh, that our system of government does not copy the institution of our neighbors. It is more the case of our being a model to others than our imitating anyone else. Our constitution is called a democracy because power is in the hands, not of a minority, but of the whole people. When it is a question of settling private disputes, everyone is equal before the law. When it is a question of putting one person before another in positions of public responsibility, what counts is not membership of a particular class, but the actual ability which the man possesses. Uh, so he posits this kind of idea that we're all in this together and that we're free to make decisions and everyone in everyone's input is valid, but I don't know if he is holding that up in his actions as much because I feel like part of him is just going like, why aren't you listening to me? You know, you should be listening to me. And that's not a very democratic kind of approach. And especially, you know, he kind of praises the character of Athenians, maybe in an idealized way in this oration. But then when we hear the descriptions of the play and that everyone is becoming unlawful and impious because of the plague, then something that, that says something to me about that, you know, Pericles just is wrong about the Athenian character or is, is making them more pious than they are towards these attributes that he's attributing to them. So I guess my question is something like, does Pericles speech that is a lot about the Athenians hold up to the reality of how the Athenians act in the plague in the plague? Well, I do think there are a couple um, maybe gentle indications in the passage that you just pointed us to, that paragraph 37 of um, book two, um, that uh, the Athenian situation might be complicated and Pericles is aware of these complications. Um, I'm thinking maybe just of a couple things. The first is, um, you, you note the uh, kind of tension between the claim that it's a democracy and everyone is equal under the law and the claim that merit is the index of your advancement. Um, and you would wonder, well, what if you have somebody of superlative merit, right? You know, certainly that would enable them to overcome uh, any defect of their class membership, which is what Pericles admits. But he doesn't say what happens when you have one person of preeminent merit uh, surrounded by others who are roughly equal. Well, maybe that tempers the extent to which it's a democratic um, system where there really is equality. And the second thing is a little bit after you read, he mentions that the, the basis of their law abidingness is fear. And then he goes on to talk about how this fear requires that uh, they have distractions to make their lives more pleasant. And it looks like there are two kinds. There are, um, Kind, uh, public activities like sacrifices, and then uh, what I would call just for a shorthand, something like kiwis or exotic fruits more generally, or produce even more generally from a, a wide ranging empire, right? In other words, the way they get over the, the downside, the painful side of having to uh, fear 
the effect of the law over one another, according to Pericles, is they have this empire where they can get lots of stuff. Um, and so I'm wondering whether, you know, they're, you know, even in the setting of a funeral oration, Pericles isn't indicating that there's something composite about the Athenian character and that compositeness uh, embodies a lot of tensions that are being held uh, tight in its current configuration, but they, they could go elsewhere. By the way, just you drawing our attention to uh, the lines that come after what Brian read at, at 38, uh, and, and going back to your question regarding piety or impiety, or possibly more, more, more the latter than, than the former possibly in the funeral oration, the only real mention of the gods and of festivals is as a distraction from the serious business of political life. Um, so that's not terribly pious. And I, I think what, what you guys were, were just saying also brings to mind, you know, I think there, there's, there's the domestic situation and then there's the empire too, which we need to bring into relief. You know, he, um, justice for him is not a very serious business either, which I think would, would fall into a, a, a kind of impiety. People obey laws because they have to. That's the unpleasant part. Just like in the empire, person or the state in charge or in charge like Athens is with respect to all the tributaries that they have they if they're nice they do it out of generosity if uh, all of the subjects of the empire do you know do anything that's that's well all that they can do from their position of weakness is is do what's mandated for them to do uh, they they might respond to the generosity, but that would all already be an obligation. So he's looking for this sort of for him for some sort of virtue that's that's undertaken for its own sake. But he's very he's clearly looking beyond what conventional laws would 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 uh, obligate you to. Being obligated by law is already just something that does not appeal to him much like it does not appeal to him to have to give the funeral oration in the first place, which he points out is mandated by law. But he, you know, he, he's not super thrilled about it. He doesn't see it as a great, he, he, see that he sees it as a really tough political sell given the circumstances. And he doesn't want, he's very concerned about inciting the envy of the people, which goes to Brian's point that, you know, it's, things are not super perfect and everyone isn't always obeying the law or being nice to one another. Also. Yeah. How much? How much? How much do we believe in Pericles' reticence to give the speech? This this might be my overly cynical nature, but you know, a a, a politician who at this point has served how many years would would it be that he's been in power when he's giving this speech? Thirty. Like, yeah, thirty years. The idea that a, that a politician wouldn't want to give this speech <laughs> is, I, 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 I want to believe it to a degree, but I also think that part of him might be going, okay, I'm really glad I'm doing this, but I have to say that I'm not glad because of the setting and everything else. But, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So I'll get up in front of everybody and talk. And, and in a very stirring way, I mean, you start reading this thing and you're just like, 
this is way better than Henry V speech. Like this is, <laughs> you know, this is much more compelling and much more thoughtful and much more moving. Um, and so when he does mention his kind of reticence to give the speech, I kind of scratch my beard a little bit and go, are you, are you Pericles? Well, but both things could be true, couldn't they? In other words, um, Pericles could recognize the speech as a danger and an opportunity. Um, and he could be forthright about the dangerousness of it and thereby diffuse the dangerousness of it by being forthright about it, right? So, you know, if you say uh, half of you are going to hate me because I don't praise them enough and the other half of you are going to hate me because I praise them too much, maybe you'll get one or two people who say, oh, I'm not going to hate you. And then you've at least, you know, exempted yourself from a little bit of hatred. And plus, you get the advantage of laying out what you take to be the fundamental truth about human beings, right? They're envious or jealous, right? Which is this, the basis or the, the foundation for the subsequent account of um, how Athens shapes this jealousy that is human nature into something that's, that's uh, capable of empire, right? That can act in some united way. So yeah, I, th I think uh, you could both say that, that uh, Pericles is reluctant and that he understands this is also an opportunity for him. I also think there's, a, there's another duality at play with, with the reticence and the, also the eagerness all at the same time to give the speech. And that is, you know, how does, or there's a dual question I always have about this. What does he really think about all the rest of the Athenians? You know, how um, he's the first among Athenians in the eulogy that Thucydides does on his behalf at uh, 265. You know, we at least hear what, that he was the first among men. This really wasn't a democracy. This was a democracy in, in name only when Pericles was in charge of it. So, you know, that... What, what Brian read out before, you know, it, there, there's definitely that. And I think the translation you're using actually makes it sound more democratic even than it, than it, it is. Because he, he really just says, you know, Athens, in Athens, the laws are made on behalf of the many, but that doesn't necessarily, he didn't quite stoop so low as to say that, that it's by the many. And, you know, in a way, when he says merit is what counts in Athens, and you think about the fact that he's been in charge of the city more or less for the last 30 years, then he is congratulating them on their good taste in putting him in charge for all of this time. So there's, you know, there's that. But, but still, right, he does, there is a kind of like stench to the people when you, you can almost feel it when, when you're reading through this, you know, he, they can't be trusted to make their the decisions the only reason there are good decisions to be made is that he's providing them to him and by the way at times we do know he did not he he declined to do he figured out a way to go against the law and not call upon the assembly because it was very inopportune to an opportune to give a speech so this time he either couldn't avoid it or he didn't want to avoid it quite as badly as he had wanted to the time before when we were we were told at a certain other point that he he canceled it, but I, I do, I do wonder, and you know, I, and I think he only likes these speeches if he could make them into what he wants them to be. Also, I mean, obviously, he's very effective at communicating something he tells everybody all the time too. Uh, but you know, this is supposed to be a way to to honor the ancestors more than it is supposed to be anything else. You know, and the question is, is that what it remains in his hands? 
Yeah, if you just look at how much of the speech is actually eulogy to the fallen, right? You subtract all the stuff about Athens, which he says, oh, that's the real eulogy. And then all the advice to the people who did not die, I think you're left with about half a paragraph. I mean, it's yeah. very brief. Yeah, which is mainly that women should not you know, do anything because the worst thing that could be that could happen to a woman is to be talked about. Um, you know, I, I, the, I think, Andrew, what you said is, um, you know, he's talking to the Athenians as he wants them to be. Is that, is that what you said a moment ago? I don't think he's that misled about what they are. I guess would be, would have been more my point. Um, but yes, I mean, the idea that he's, he, I don't think the Athenians are impressive, but Athens is impressive, mm -hmm. which does beg the question of what is Athens, if not the people who make it up, you know, is he equating yeah. Athens with himself? Um, does anybody really ha other than him really have yeah. a place in this eulogy? In fact, Oh, that's an even better tee up to my question, um, Perfect. which is how much, um, how much does Pericles not understand why Athenians can't be more like him? Um, and, and there's two passages I want to read that kind of may, might help us explore that question where uh, in paragraph 43 he says, for famous men have the whole earth as their memorial. It is not only the inscriptions on their graves in their own country that mark them out, no, in foreign lands also, not in any visible form, but in people's hearts, their memory abides and grows. It is for you to try to be like them. Make up your minds that happiness depends on being free and freedom depends on being courageous. And then the second thing I wanted to read uh, is in paragraph 40, where he says, here each individual is interested not only in his own affairs, but in the affairs of the state as well. Even those who are mostly occupied with their own business are extremely well-informed on general politics. This is a peculiarity of ours. We do not say that a man who takes no interest in politics is a man who minds his own business. We say that he has no business here at all. And so I want to take that as, you know, I think that the, the first thing I read seems very kind of autobiographical, but I also think it has a fundamental flaw in its idea of freedom. You know, like, I don't think that freedom depends on being courageous. I think freedom depends on not being, you know, violently coerced by somebody else. You know, courage might be required in that moment, um, but the, it's not the a priori uh, beginning of freedom. You know, it is, it is something that's subsequent to that. Um, and so I wonder how much he, like his experience of ruling for 30 years and his experience of being, you know, this great man of Athens is that he is to a degree like lecturing the Athenians on what they should be and what they aren't. Yeah, I kept wondering where these monuments that he refers to are um, and how it is exactly that they are imperishable. Uh, there's some denigration of actual monuments, right? Columns that might have been set up somewhere but if i'm a a poor athenian who's rowing in one of the triremes right um i guess i'm supposed to identify myself with athens just as much as pericles himself can identify himself with athens and that seems like um a bit of a deception to me or it's it's a it's a point that's being stretched much more than it would be in the case of identifying pericles and athens and we don't know the names of these Athenians. We don't even know the names of the ones who died 
uh, and are being memorialized in this uh, funeral oration, but we know Pericles. So yeah, I think I'm on, on board with you about that, Brian. Yeah, and I mean, it is interesting that, you know, it is uh, a, public a public funeral for the, you know, the first to die in the war. Um, but uh, two days before the ceremony, the bones of the fallen are brought and put in a tent, which has been erected, and the people make whatever offerings they wish to their own dead. Then there is a funeral procession in which coffins of cypress woods are carried on wagons. There is one coffin for each tribe, which contains the bones of members of that tribe. So these are mass graves where individuals aren't even, you know, can't even be determined or counted or anything like that. It just goes from a rickety tent to what I assume is a fairly big coffin where they just pile the bones in from, you know, each tribe. And so none of these, it's kind of like what you were saying, Jeff, none of these people are individually feted or individually honored. It is, you know, some kind of honoring of, you know, a, a general amorphous, you know, those that have fallen, but not an individual thing. Um, and I mean, that's, it's not surprising with the kind of fog of war, what you would ex assume happened, you know, 2,500 years ago, but it is interesting in that, you know, the idea of Pericles is something that will continue, but these individual war dead, you know, they're, they're, they're scenery in this scene, you know, their background. Yeah, there, there's even a line um, somewhere in the latter part of the, the speech about uh, to parents, you know, where he's clearly seems uncomfortable. You know, those people have actually lost something, the, the parents of the dead. Um, and then there's just super awkward suggestion that they could just have more children so they can forget about these children that have now been buried who will never be forgotten. <laughs> right. So it's... He, you know, as great as the speech is, I don't, I don't think it's very good on, you know, when it addresses these personal losses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Andrew, you had a, a question in, in, talking about kind of personal loss um, and how Thucydides kind of wants to make it visceral to us uh, in terms of his kind of detailed account of the illness and its symptoms. Um, you know, you sent in just the question is, is why does Thucydides provide you know, such a detailed account of the illness and its symptoms. And I wondered if you could kind of tease that out for us. Like, what are your thoughts behind why he does that? I thought I was just supposed to ask the question. <laughs> you want me, you I got want me to have... It's a trap. <laughs> so I could, I'll open it. I'll, I'll, I'll throw something out there for us to, to consider. Cause I, I think to a degree it, it does, we're not off the hook on the first question when we mm -hmm. ask that question. Cause I, you know, I think, I think one way to look at the funeral oration preceding the plague is as uh, Pericles attempt to hide from, run away from, diminish in every way possible, the personal, the private, the body. You know, he, he calls, he even calls the death of the, the ones who gave their lives in the war as anesthetized death, unfelt death, death that, you know, it doesn't matter. The glory will be forever. Honor will be forever. The body doesn't matter. And I think the, 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 the comment about the women is, is to that point. This is the one time women are allowed to, and in fact, you know, encouraged to 
legally encouraged to be out there and whale. That's their contribution. So when you have the women out, you've got the private, the personal, the familial out in full speed. No, thank you, says Pericles, you know, just keep quiet. Let's remember that a woman's best unheard, which again is exactly what they were supposed to be doing. So there's every attempt here to say the public and what you read earlier, also what the person did individually, privately, it doesn't matter. Um, it does, and it doesn't even matter if they were terrible human beings, ultimately, if they serve the state, that really works. And the state in this case is really worth dying for. It's, it's worth living for, if you will. It's worth everything because Athens is very, very special in that way. All right, so then we get to the plague. The plague, if you will, seems to just tear down the public, you know, and the, and the private is, is in your face. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that would be one thing. There's, this is a, a very violently graphic way to discuss what cannot be ignored, which is the individual, the body, decay, how that really affects us as human beings. Yeah, there are some uh, striking details that I think go along in this direction, and it would help if um, we can put them together in a kind of fleshing out this, this approach to the, the details of the plague. Um, so we've got the geographic progression of the plague. It comes from Northern Africa. It goes around the east coast of uh, the Mediterranean, apparently through the realms of the Persian king. And it's gotten to one of the Greek islands with some frequency, um, but not to Athens until now. Right, so there's that kind of geographic, I don't know if they'd consider it that a bottom up or a, a south to north direction. Um, but then the, uh, may, maybe it should be considered politically, there's some movement from uh, uh, you know, a monarchy to a nominal democracy that might be in effect a monarchy. But in any case, there's that, that geographic sweep of the plague and then there's the um, bodily sweep of the plague and it looks like Thucydides depicts it as uh, head down, mm -hmm. right? And ending in the, uh, the lower extremities and also inside out. Um, so that they're burning on the inside and eventually it manifests itself on the outside. Uh, insatiable thirst is, is a characteristic. Inability to rest is a characteristic. Um, now there's a strong uh, side of naturalism in, in this account. Thucydides seems very serious about describing the plague so that if it were to happen again, it could be recognized. He even talks about the kind of experiments that might be necessary to distinguish whether it's the same plague or not, distinguish its effects on animals. But on the other hand, I can't help be, but be struck that, uh, by a, a metaphorical side to this too. Um, so is, is the head down uh, direction of the plague in the individual um, meant to stand in for uh, Pericles' responsibility that really the plague first is in him and then as a result it's in the whole of Athens. Any ideas on how to interpret these things? Well, one reason I, I'm, I'm not immediately taken with it is because there is there seems to be so much uh, emphasis on showing how this did in fact start outside of Athens. I mean, I had never thought of it that way that it, it even that may, may be a metaphorical sweep towards Athens somehow. But in that case, though, the head would be Egypt. Mm -hmm. if, if we wanted to really maintain uh, the metaphor, I, 
it's, it's always seemed to me that he's gone out of his way to make it a naturalistic account. So the more that you look for uh, deeper causes than that, this tends to spread across peoples that are seafaring and have ports that are cosmopolitan. And you know, it, it went along trade routes. And also war obviously means that you are out and about more so than you would normally be. So it, it, exacerbates, it exacerbates things in a number of ways, including the one we were talking about before where there are refugees inside of the walls in Athens and so forth. So I guess that maybe I'm too stuck in my ways thinking of it that way, but that, that's my immediate response. Of, I feel like there's not much support for this, mm-hmm. for blaming uh, yeah, for, for a supernatural or even a metaphorical version of blame. Well, even on the naturalistic grounds, I think you could say something like um, its move from the Piraeus to the Acropolis um, was, uh, you know, a, a characteristic Athenian weakness, maybe even under healthy circumstances, precisely because they are a maritime power that would bring people in from all sorts of places. And there's a lot of commerce where, uh, goods have to come up from the port to the the higher city. All those things you think, even um, in a healthy Athens, would contribute to the spread of the plague. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know uh, how far we're supposed to take any other level of interpretation. You make a, an interesting point. What what where would Thucydides stand, or can we give any thought to how Thucydides feels about the importance of avoiding plague in the future? Now, understanding it and dealing with it, better or worse, he explicitly, like you said, mentions. But would he be in favor? So Sparta is much more insular. It, um, you know, does not have a, a the, its port to the degree that it has a port. It's super removed from the city. Um, it does not. It does does not have a presence outside of of Sparta. It's it's it does social distancing, <laughs> if you will, from the rest of the world. Um, does that make it better on those grounds? Should we be more like Sparta than like Athens because Athens invites plagues and uh, things that infectious diseases and infections of all kinds, perhaps even amores and and so forth? Does that is that something that Thucydides would consider worth avoiding. I think he, you know, he mentions, I forget where, um, but he praises Pericles. Um, And so I think it would be hard for me to, you know, think that Thucydides would um, either a take a very straightforward approach or B, not be a little bit biased towards Pericles and Athens. Um, and I think that, you know, I think he would probably ask like, what is, what's, nah, I don't want to say what's the best return on investment for, for whatever public policy you're going to be doing, but something like don't, don't sacrifice who you are um, just because X or Y is going to happen. You know, that, that's something like, virtue um is more important than dying of the plague which also seems relatively silly when you say it out loud right that 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 is ridiculous that you can't you can't have virtue if you're dead um so i don't know not, all not I guess, according to the funeral oration <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> that's valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. true. That's right. true. Well, there's. Uh, I, I'm not sure what Thucydides himself thinks. I, I might feel a little more confident in trying to think through what Pericles seems to think, right? There's that funny reference, and I hope it's not an act of my translation, um, to uh, a general law of decay mm. in his second speech. And I wondered whether um, that he didn't, there wasn't some sense that um, for all his language about um, immortal fame, uh, he isn't uh, Heraclitean in some sense, right? Everything flows away, right? Nothing lasts forever. And if that's true, d does it go like this then, that the difference between Sparta lasting for 800 years and Athens lasting for however many, 400, 300 years, is not a significant difference. What the, the significant differences are what you are while you last, right? And so... Um, there's some argument then for not living in a way that procures mere durability because mm. you can't expect to live forever. Um, but at the cost of uh, any higher achievement, any excellence, anything that distinguishes you, uh, that view might be defensible even if uh, there is no such thing as immortal fame, right? right? So all fame also perishes, but right. I'm not entirely confident of that reasoning. Yeah, I think that's a, I think, I, I do think that that, I'm sympathetic to that point of view on both Thucydides and Pericles, but they might have different views of what lasts forever. You know, Thucydides wrote this book, he at a certain point says in book one that this is, this is a, a useful thing, this book about Pericles. Pericles himself, you know, in his view of what lasts forever, he, he you know, that, that may be a different thing in terms of a person choosing to devote their life to procuring immortal fame the way that Pericles does. Yeah, interesting point, Jeff, for sure. By the, the first speech, that, the funeral oration versus the last speech, um, he does seem to, to admit that Athens isn't gonna last forever, but there's some caveats there too. You know, somehow, ruling as much as it is humanly possible to rule is, is worthwhile and will be remembered. And, yeah, and that oh, seems, to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought that I was just going to say uh, that that seems worthwhile, no matter what to him. Em therefore empire building is worthwhile. Therefore, whatever costs come with empire building are worth taking or having. Right, you just reminded me of that passage in the funeral oration where he says we have no need of a Homer to memorialize our activity, but uh, of course it is Thucydides perhaps inventing this claim of Pericles that you don't need a Homer, and so there is a Homer. It's Thucydides. Yeah, this is it's a it's a complicated structure. Yeah, um, exactly. Which and get going back to one of your first questions about piety, we don't need Homer to immortalize us. I would also argue is fairly impious. It's it certainly, I mean, all of his respect for the ancestral is, 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 you know, is not there. Um, if, I mean, on two, on two levels, right? The fact that we don't need one, that's a bad thing. If we were to need one, it would be only to immortalize Pericles also is a problem from the point of view of uh, hubris.
Good times. <laughs> so what's the point of the, of the plague then, right? So if, if we're right that uh, Pericles is a problem of sorts, he, you know, he's very attached to his views on eternal glory and Athens somehow was supposed to bring that, even though um, we, 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 he, does, he does seem to realize that it's going to fade at a certain point. Um, and certainly in spite of whether it lays down uh, memorials for good and evil. So he's not, again, his uh, disparagement of justice front and center. Um, so if there's a problem with Pericles' point of view for Thucydides, does that somehow come out in the account of the plague? Because one of the things about the plague is that Thucydides is front and center. I had the plague, I survived it. I am here to give you a scientific account as best as I can to help into, into the future, should this come again and so forth. So he takes the stage between these two moments that he gives to Pericles. So. What is the significance of that, do we think? Well, I'm going to wander out of the territory of naturalism and back into metaphor to some extent. Um, Pericles died and Thucydides didn't because Thucydides knew something and Pericles didn't. Uh, now, I think obviously I can't uh, um, take that the whole way, right? It was an accident, I take it, that uh, Thucydides uh, lived and Pericles died. But... I, I do suspect that there's some teaching in here about um, moderate hopes, neither excessive despair nor ex excessive hope um, that might characterize Thucydides himself more than it characterizes Pericles. Um, in other words, you might think that behind a person like Pericles, there must be immoderate hopes and therefore um, vulnerability to despair and therefore perhaps even vulnerability to, to physical illness. Well, yeah, I mean, time, it, uh, go ahead. This time, I really like your metaphorical understanding. <laughs> <laughs> but Brian, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to mention, you know, as all this is going on, it doesn't seem like Pericles um, ever gives off the impression that he doesn't think he should be in charge, which seems a very kind of anti-democratic stance. And it also kind of points towards a hubris. And it kind of made me, it reminded me of... Um, uh, and I'm remembering this from a, a random Nassim Nicholas Taleb book, but you know, he says something like that the Eastern Orthodox Christian church is part of the liturgy in becoming a bishop. Like one of the key parts of the liturgy is you have to say, I am not worthy of being a bishop right before you become a bishop, you know, which is basically a way to, you know, remember thou art another way to say, remember thou art mortal. Um, but it's, it doesn't seem like, Pericles would ever say, like, I am not worthy of being in charge. Um, you know, he kind of blames the people around him. And even though he's proven right, you know, after he leaves, loses power um, or after he's replaced um, and, and things go badly for the Athenians, it doesn't seem like there's a hesitancy on his part of going, hey, you know, if you guys want to fire me, you know, put somebody else in charge. You got it. You know, I'm up, I'm up for whatever the demos, you know, says is the right thing to do. See, I think that the Greek gods are much more permissive of a, of a prideful leader than, than you might be indicating. 
Oh, well, I mean, that, that's valid too. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. And it's all, and it's also like, I, I learned mean, the, Spart- the Spartans are not Democrats and they're viewed to be the, the, you know, they're, they're, they take piety seriously and they are generally have a very good reputation, you know, among mm-hmm. the Greeks for their Greekness. Greekness is not synonymous with democracy. Just, oh, yeah. to, just to support Pericles, Pericles a tiny bit. I think they might have more trouble with the whole idea that they, he doesn't need them, mm-hmm. but that he doesn't need the people except that he actually does need them yeah. in order to keep him in power in a democracy. That's a different it's story. A, well, he's a complex character, but I'm glad we got to talk about this today. Um, and I think that's a, a kind of a good place to end. So Andrea, thank you so much for being on the show. I yeah, thank had you, a Andrea. lot of fun. Thank you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Finally, <laughs> finally did a, finally did a plague tie in show like <laughs> 80 days into this thing. Yes, but um, we stopped before Thucydides' advice on how to survive the plague. So <laughs> our I listeners know. will just have to figure that out for themselves. Read the book. Yeah, read the book. Yeah, good times. There's more. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Andrea. Yep. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.